Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than nine years experience in Brazil and China. First up, I want to tell you all about some personal news. I got an award. Since our last episode aired, I found out that I won second prize in the Society of Environmental Journalists Awards for Beat Reporting. Of course, you always want to be first, but it was an honor to come in second place to a team of three reporters who I know at the Washington Post for their important coverage of Trump's dismantling of environmental regulations in the U.S. and Biden subsequently building it back up. For my part, the award was for my coverage of Brazil's environment in 2020, which included rolling back environmental enforcement because of the pandemic, my on-the-ground coverage of record fires in the Pantanal, and uncovering thousands of illegal wood shipments from the Amazon to the U.S. and elsewhere. If you want to see my five stories that won the award, please go to my Twitter, which is at Jake Spring, and is the pinned tweet at the top. Now, on to our guest. For this episode, I spoke to Emily Green, a correspondent for Vice News based in Mexico City. Emily will tell us the amazing story of how she won a Pulitzer when they handed out an award for audio reporting for the first time. The most surprising thing, perhaps, is that she didn't even know she had been entered. Throughout this interview, Emily is extremely honest about all the ups, but especially the downs in her career, including how some early success stalled out for many years. The path to where she is today went through the Wall Street Journal, a legal publication in California, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many public radio outfits along the way. Emily came to be a foreign correspondent in her 30s, doing it the hard way by moving to Mexico City to freelance. She'll talk about how the pandemic upended that freelance life in Mexico. There's also some heartwarming moments, especially her being with her family when she finds out that she won the Pulitzer. For journalists out there, I think there is really a lot to learn and relate to in this episode. And for everyone, I think Emily is someone you'll root for along the way. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Emily Green for Vice News in Mexico City. First of all, I'll just start by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Emily. Thanks for having me on it. So we like to give our listeners an idea of how you got to where you are today, how you ended up being a correspondent for Vice in Mexico. And we take a very long view and like to start way back at the beginning. If you can tell us a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest early on for being a journalist or living abroad or the stuff you do now. Sure. I was born and grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I have always been a curious person and a nosy person, and I think journalism is perfect for that profession because it allows you to be in places that you shouldn't. <laughs> um, the seed for becoming a journalist began with my aunt. She's a journalist, and it seemed like a lot of fun. And she got to meet interesting people, reported on interesting topics. And also there was a finality to it in that she started a story and then finished the story and then moved on. Mm -hmm. And so journalism called out to me. What kind of journalist was your aunt? My aunt is a reporter for NPR. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. So your aunt was a journalist, is a journalist in this kind of 
led you to want to pursue journalism. Did you do any journalism as a kid? I don't recall doing any. I think when I started was in college. I went to George Washington University and I worked at the GW Hatchet. And it's slightly funny because my father, who is a wonderful human being and slightly has too much time on his hands, (laughs) went and looked up one of my last stories for the GW Hatchet. And it was when swine flu was happening. And the story that I wrote was about, you know, what to do if it turned into a pandemic. And the takeaway from my story was, you should definitely not go into lockdown. So (laughs) I was totally off base, (laughs) Um, very much off base. Um, That was really the the kind of initial seeds, I would say, of, of my journalism career. After college, I got a Fulbright and I went to the Philippines where I reported on freedom of the press issues. This was around 2007, so it was before President Duarte. But even way back then, there were huge issues in terms of journalists being murdered, being sued, libel was a criminal crime. And so my goal was to report on that. Of course, I was only 22 years old, and I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) And I was in way over my head. But I did do a few good stories while I was there. And I think back on that time and think, wow, what I could have done if I had the skills that I have now and the know-how that I have now. But, you know, such is life. Did you, I mean, I know people who have done Fulbrights, but usually it ends in a paper or some people write kind of more academic books. How did, how did it work as, as a journalist? Did you pitch journalism pieces, freelance pieces? I'm sure that I proposed it in terms of writing a grand book or report about it. It did not end up that way. I did write a feature story for the Washington Post featuring the then head of the Filipino Supreme Court. I also interned at a publication uh, called Newsbreak. Newsbreak was a precursor to the publication that's now run by Maria Reza. She was on the cover of Time magazine a year or two ago and is perhaps the most famous Filipino journalist. So I was working with some incredible, incredible journalists, but I was just young. I was 22, and I really had no idea what I was doing. Sure, but I mean, at a certain age, like, I feel like if I had been published in the Washington Post at 22, I would have been, I would have died. It would have been, like, <laughs> okay, uh, I've done what I set out to do. I mean, that must have been a pretty big deal, no? That was a very exciting deal, but it was definitely the biggest piece I had for 10 years, you know. I would, even 10 <laughs> years later, I would be putting that on the list of work that I did as I published in the in the Washington Post. <laughs> and... uh I mean, at this point, did you have you always studied Spanish? Have you always taken Spanish? And uh, I mean, well, I mean, after that, I, you know, I that was when I was twenty-two, and I did not move to Mexico until I was thirty-three. So um, my Spanish skills really came from when I was around fifteen years old. My parents sent me to Venezuela to study Spanish. This was right as Chavez was taking power. And Venezuela was still considered very much a gold standard for Latin America. I was there for a few months. I I picked up Spanish so-so, 
Um, the following summer, I went to Mexico on one of these summer study abroad programs. And that was the basis of my Spanish for a long time. I ended up later in life in my career in San Francisco, and I had a lot of wonderful Latino friends who just bore with me as I spoke very grammatically broken Spanish. And I and I got better little by little, but even to this day, I would say that my Spanish, I can get along just fine, but I am sure that it is riddled with errors, and it's hard to learn a second language as an adult. Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned Portuguese after living in China and stuff. And I mean, I function, but I mean, my Portuguese is not perfect. I make mistakes nonstop, too. Um, Just out of curiosity, since I've never spoken to anybody who's worked in the Philippines, hopefully I'll have someone on soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, How was navigating that as a journalist there? In terms of working there, it's an interesting environment. I think that it's like working in many countries that have a weak justice system and that you can expose incredible corruption and injustice as a journalist and do incredible work. But that doesn't necessarily translate into change. Mm -hmm. In some ways, the potential for exposing corruption was much greater in the Philippines than, say, the United States. But it didn't always add up to anything. In fact, it usually did not add up to anything. You know, I want to be clear. We are talking about 22, and now I'm, I'm 38, so we are talking about 15, 16 years ago. So I don't know what it's like in the Philippines now. My senses, if anything, it's gotten much more difficult for journalists. And uh, yeah, that's very interesting. You want to see impact from your reporting. <laughs> you, I mean, if you always set out to, with that in mind, that, you know, if your reporting is geared towards changing the status quo? No, I don't think that my reporting is actually geared toward changing the status quo, because I have little hope that it will change the status quo. I mean, I I won a Pulitzer for my reporting on immigration and the practice of expelling migrants from the United States back into Mexico into incredibly, incredibly dangerous Mexican cities. The Biden administration has come in, and while that particular policy is no longer in effect, that practice is still happening. So... I don't hold out much hope that my reporting specifically will change the status quo. I think the most that I can hope for is that the body of work done by many reporters could change the discussion around a certain topic, could create pressure, and maybe eventually change policy. But the only time that I actually have seen a direct impact from my reporting to policy is when I was reporting for the San Francisco Chronicle as a city hall reporter. And I did a big feature story about how exorbitant the fines were. And shortly after that story, the city government reduced the fines. That still stays with me as reporting that's had the most direct impact. Yeah, I find that, yeah, especially as a a foreign correspondent, I mean, the most impact is actually at the local level or being done by 
local reporters reporting to the local market mm-hmm. who have the power to to have you know more of a voice in democracies at least to to do something to change it right I guess just to move forward then what what do you do after the Fulbright in the Philippines after the Fulbright in the Philippines, I got a job at the Wall Street Journal and I was hired to cover personal finance. Wow. And it was, quite frankly, a horrible fit. It couldn't have been worse. (laughs) They didn't like me, and I didn't like them. And How did that happen? I think I interview very well, and then I think I was also attracted by the Wall Street Journal, you know, being 24, 25, and that was a big deal. But I definitely should not have taken the job, and they definitely should not have hired me for that job. You know, not to say, then that's not about the Wall Street Journal as an institution or as a paper, because I do fabulous work. It's just that that particular job of covering personal finance uh, was not up my alley, and I have never been someone who's been particularly interested in money, except to the extent that I can live comfortably. That ended up with me getting fired slash quitting in the moment of getting fired. And it was a very sure. inglorious and humiliating end to that, to that particular chapter of my life. Oof. And I ended up back in Georgia with my tail between my legs, and I got a internship at Georgia Public Broadcasting, which is a local NPR station. And that in itself was also a bit humiliating in that I was literally typing in high school football scores into their database because that's what people care about in Georgia. So it was a tough time. I went from having a Fulbright, having a job at the Wall Street Journal to inputting football scores. And I say that only, you know, I guess I I don't normally talk about my experience at the Wall Street Journal, but I do think it's important that folks know that failure happens. And while working at Georgia Public Broadcasting was very difficult, I also would say it set me up for success later in life because I learned there to do radio. Yeah, things have certainly worked out. So, yeah, did you take to audio journalism right away? It was it, I assume you learned it all on the job. How, how was those early days starting out in it? I don't think that I took to it right away. I had a boyfriend at the time who was very, very, very good in radio, and he taught me an enormous amount about the medium and and how to make good radio. And that was, I guess, my start, but I don't think that I would say I, I took to it right away. What I liked about it was that it offered a different way of telling stories, one based around sound and it made me realize that there are certain stories that are much better for print and certain stories that are much better for audio. Some are great for both, but it allowed me to see, oh, this story is made for this medium and to pursue it in that way. And that opened a lot of doors for me. And I think, I mean, that opened doors for me and I started doing news spots for NPR and kind of got my confidence back up. After working at Georgia Public Broadcasting, I went out to California 
again with with that same boyfriend and he had a job in Sacramento and and I went with him and I got a job at a legal publication basically one of the statewide legal rags reporting on mm. the judiciary for for a legal newspaper like what the budget for the judiciary was etc and I stayed at that legal newspaper for 5 years Oh, wow. Yeah, I stayed there for a very long time. While I was there, I mean, I'd say that the real upside is that they let me do some freelancing for NPR. So it was while I was at that legal rag, I would sometimes turn the very story that I had done for them, I would turn it for NPR. And I really got, I'd say, my first big pieces on NPR that way. And that was great. But it didn't add up to a job at NPR for me, or even close. And yeah, I was at that legal paper for five years, when I have to say I was pretty desperate to get out. I felt like the end of the road for me, like, where do you go from here? Kind of make a leap or or bust. I just was totally desperate. And by some grace, the San Francisco Chronicle had had a job opening and I applied and got it. And I became the city hall reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I'm so grateful for that because it felt like a huge leap at that point in my career. Yeah, wow. San Francisco Chronicle is one of the biggest papers in the country. And yeah, those uh, city hall jobs, like you said, about the fines, like uh, it's like real accountability mm-hmm. reporting. Yeah. You know, it's important work. I, I feel like that job... I didn't love that job, but I learned an enormous amount in that job. It's a great training job for any reporter. So I, I recognize that even in the moment, even as I wasn't loving it, I also recognize how much I learned. I became a faster writer. I became a cleaner writer. I became good at writing about things I didn't know about. And most importantly, I got a thick skin because the supervisors and the mayor's office would call me all hours of the day, bitching and whining and complaining about some small thing that their quote didn't go first, and <laughs> you would have thought it was the end of the world. And up until that point in my career, I had been really used to pleasing people. I liked people to be happy with my stories, and it was a real shift for me to realize my audience is not the people that I'm reporting on, the people that I should be reporting for is the public. And if the supervisors aren't happy, well, then screw it. That's not my problem. That's a good lesson to learn. So how, how long did you do that job for? I did that job for two years, and I had always wanted to go back to Latin America to report from Latin America. And I had thought about doing it many times previously in, in, in prior years, and I never did it in part because it felt like I was running from something, like running from the lack of a job, as opposed to running towards something. I was running from lack of opportunity instead of going towards something that I wanted to do. I've been at the San Francisco Chronicle for two years, and I really feel like I was a B-plus, A-minus reporter, a city hall reporter. I was fine at it, but I wasn't great. I think there was two things going on. I wanted to go to Latin America, and I also looked at my career and where I was at the San Francisco Chronicle, and I sort of said, what's next? 
I didn't think I was going to be hired from the New York Times from the Chronicle because I just wasn't good enough. And I also really wanted to move to Latin America, and I couldn't get a job from San Francisco speaking so, so Spanish, never having spent significant time in Latin America. Who was going to hire me? And that was facing me. I went to Mexico City with my two best friends for the inauguration of Donald Trump. And I reported on the inauguration, and then we explored the city and had one of the best weekends of my entire life. And afterwards, I said, you know, this is where I want to be. And I started telling people that, in part because I wanted to push myself along. Like, if I told enough people, at some point I had to do it. And I, my thought at the time was that to try and get the Chronicle to open a bureau in Mexico— and I wrote out this very long memo to the Chronicle describing why I thought the Bureau was a good idea, especially in light of Trump taking office and also proposing different ideas. And I sent it to the editor-in-chief, and she called me into her room, and it was a non-starter. I mean, there was just no way. Uh-huh. It was not happening. I mean, I wouldn't say I was laughed out of the room, but I was... It was not happening. But I do say in her credit, I think her name is Audrey Cooper. She's now at WNYC. I do think that she said, I do think that she encouraged me to go, even so. I don't remember exactly how it went down. But by that point, I had written this memo. I had sent it to her. I let it out what I wanted to do. So I felt like that was a point of no return. And At some point, I just set a date for myself to leave the Chronicle and move to Mexico. And it was terrifying. I was really scared and worried that it would be the end of my career. And at the same level, I thought to myself, you know, this is one life that I have. What will I regret most? Trying and failing or staying at a job that I am so-so at and don't love? for the rest of my life, just so I can have health care and job security. And thinking about it in those terms and framing it in those terms made the decision much easier. And I also think that journalism is a career that rewards risk-taking to an extent, perhaps educated risk-taking, and that if I came to Mexico and I flamed out, that I could always go back and tell that story and make it sound better than it was. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, that, that also comforted me to some extent. Sure. Yeah, no, that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, makes me think of my own career. And, you know, I graduated in the financial crisis. And, you know, I got a job in Myrtle Beach working at the local newspaper, The Sun News there. And I just kind of saw no road ahead of me. And had I had all the avenues in front of me, I feel like I would not have moved to China and taken this huge risk, which honestly, at the time, I don't think I actually knew how big of a risk it was. I was just too stupid for failure to occur to me, (laughs) even though I was so in over my head, saving up like three grand. I remember I just, unlike you at a date, I was going to save up $3,500. That's exactly how much I thought I needed and move and like... I mean, it all worked out. Uh, I think the risk was rewarded, but it is like it could have gone so bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. 
I, I guess I'm curious if it was as was it as hard as you expected? Obviously, you've succeeded at it, but how did it match up versus against those fears? I guess the first four months I hardly worked, and it was so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I took Spanish classes, and the the school where I went was about an hour away by train, and which would frequently break down. And it was so lovely because I just didn't have anywhere to be. And San Francisco is very much a city that's like lunch from 2 to 3.30 and this meeting from 3.30 to 4 and something from 4 to 6. And I was so happy to have no obligations. So I, I didn't work barely at all. As soon as I did, I mean, yeah, it was hard. It was hard going at first. Several reporters here were incredibly kind and would kind of give me their leftover story ideas um, or things that they weren't going to pursue. And I did several sports stories to start off. I like reporting on sports, oddly. I like it in the context of what is what do sports say about society. So I reported on the women's soccer league that had just started. I reported on a Mexican women rugby team. And I kind of started around the edges. I had a fantastic break in that after two months of starting to work in Mexico, the 2017 earthquake came here. And... NPR's regular correspondent wasn't here. NPR's backup correspondent wasn't here. And their third in line was busy. And so it was on me. And so I started filing for their NPR newscast. And I did their first big story after the earthquake. And it was a good one. And I think that was shocking, perhaps, to the editor at NPR. And I think she started to take me seriously. They wanted everything they could get. And so I did a bunch of stories from PR. I did a bunch of stories for the public radio program, The World. And it was a really good ego boost and a really good way for my name to get out there. The thing that's difficult is that these major publications, I mean, they they want you in a time of crisis and they're insatiable and they want all of the stories they can get. And then the crisis ends and you're a bit of chopped liver to them. And I remember that being one of my lowest points, going from so much work and being so needed to having absolutely nothing for a good long while. And that was incredibly difficult. And I think that that was the way it was really for my first two years of reporting was my first two years of freelancing was work, 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 nothing, 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 nothing. And it was it was tough going through those waves. And going in and pitching pitching editors, I mean, I guess you had already had some experience at NPR and things like that. I mean, I see you've written for uh, several different publications, and now you're working for Vice. I mean, how how did you find that process of um, getting through to editors and getting them to take your stories? I'd say a mixed bag. I think I, you know, I found kind of the publications and the outlets that I wanted to work for where I had connections and people generally responded even if to say no. So in those first few years, I did a couple of stories for KCRW, which is the Santa Monica public radio station. Like I didn't try to go for the big outlets. Yes, NPR is big, but I wasn't pitching to the Post. I wasn't pitching to the Times. And I did find that they responded to me. The difficult part is the prices that they would offer were just sometimes horrible. I mean, real low ball 
And I had to really learn how to advocate for myself in terms of money. And even, I think, by the time I finished freelancing, I was one of the best-paid freelancers, and that still doesn't say very much. Sure, yeah, and I imagine, I mean, if this was, uh, you know, around the era when I was in China and, like, you know, the Atlantic and foreign policy would pay, like, what, 150 250 bucks. And I remember foreign policy being like, oh, this is a Q&A, so we give you $100 less. And I was like... Yes. Fuck you. Like, I can't believe this. And like, nobody else has this. You're not going to get this anywhere else. And then they gave me more money. And I was shocked. I was like, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't right. know you could ask for more. Um, but some of those rates were really insanely low. I mean, I feel like when I, you know, when I talk to freelancers now about how to negotiate, I say it's like negotiating anything. You have to be willing to walk away. And... That is the trick to, to good negotiations. So if they're offering you three and you come back with seven, you have to be willing to walk away if they don't get you what you want. And I've only had to do that once, but it was with the Atlantic, which was very painful. But I offered them what I essentially thought was somewhat of an investigative piece, and they offered me $500. And it was an enormous amount of work, and I asked for more, and they said no. And I said, you know, thank you very much, but I, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a tough decision to make, but it's good you're, you stuck to your guns, I think. Let me see. So uh, how did you start freelancing for Vice? I started working for Vice in 2018 when that huge migrant caravan started in Honduras and, and came up through Mexico to the United States. That was the big one. But nobody knew at that time it was going to be big, and I dropped a few lines to the international editor at Vice. I had gotten his email from a friend of mine. And I said, hey, I'm going down here. I'm going to go. And I just want to see if you'd be interested in a, in a story or two. And here's some of my work. And Vice agreed to hire me for one story. And so I went down there. And the morning after I arrived, Trump started tweeting about it. And so the whole thing just exploded. And it's a funny turn of fate, but I had done some reporting for the Daily Beast prior to that, and I had also told the Daily Beast that I was going down, and they didn't commit to a story. They just kind of said, you know, let us know when you get there, and we'll see. And so when I got there and Vice had committed to the story, I did the story for Vice, and Daily Beast came back to me and said, you're our person. And I said, thanks so much, but <laughs> I'm I'm working for Vice now. <laughs> I mean, I've done the story for Vice, and, and that was the end of my relationship with the Daily Beast and the beginning of my relationship with Vice. And I ended up doing oh, wow. three stories for Vice on that caravan, and that snowballed into many more over the coming year that I worked for them, and they became one of my best clients and a real solid source of income for me throughout all of 2019. That's great. And I guess, how do you balance, you said earlier, you know, there are certain stories that are better for text, certain stories that are better for audio. Have you always done a mix of them when you've been a freelancer in Mexico? Or have you gone on long streaks where you did a lot of audio and then you take a break and do just text? Or how, how do you manage that? I definitely did long streaks where I do more text or long streaks where I do more audio, but I was always doing a combination of the two, and I think it's what saved me. And I, it's the first thing I tell anybody who's thinking of freelancing is it's great to have skills in more than one medium. 
Like, it's fabulous if you want to be a long-form print reporter, don't we all? But, you know, get some skills in another medium. Because part of what paid the bills was doing tape syncs, where it's I'm literally putting a microphone to somebody's face, and they pay me $200 for that. I mean, that helped pay the bills. And then when I was on the caravan, um, I mean, in any coverage I did, I, I could almost double my income because I would do a version for print, and I would do a version for radio for a different outlet so that it just very much expanded my ability to make a living. And on that migrant caravan, for example, I was filing for NPR, I was filing for The World. The BBC would call me up and I'd do interviews with them. And I was also writing for Vice. And I think that being able to fall back on both mediums was so essential to my success. Yeah, that's great. And was uh, this caravan, was that the first time, I mean, you thought like, okay, I've figured this out. Like, uh, you know, I'm established as a freelancer. Were you? Was that when you felt like you had some more security for the first time and you had already been there about, what, two years at, at that point? I think what it did for me is that it got me in good with Vice and it really solidified my, my relationship with PRI's The World, which is a program that runs during the day on NPR. And having those two outlets to work steadily for changed a lot for me. It just meant that I had contacts, relationships with these editors, that they would come to me if there was a big story in Mexico, and that I could pitch them and there was a very good chance they'd say yes. So that's what changed. And and it made work a lot steadier for me in that I had two outlets that I was working for regularly. Sure. And let me see. I was curious. I, I looked back at uh, your Pulitzer winning piece for NPR. And uh, I was just curious because it is NPR. It is an L.A. Times reporter. You know, you're freelancing for uh, Vice, but also for NPR at the time. Just like how how did that all come together? So I had done a version of that story for Vice, and I was very grateful because they, they sent me to Nuevo Laredo, which is one of the most dangerous cities in Mexico. And I would never have gone there as a freelancer without institutional support. So I, I went there in Vice. Their security team was monitoring me. They gave me money to hire a fixer and things of that nature. So I, I'd gone there in August of 2019, and that's when the person I was I had interviewed was was kidnapped. I published a version of that story, I believe, in September for Vice, and that was at that point the end of it. But I had all of this audio that I knew was very powerful, and I knew that in part because of my experience working in in radio, and I thought it would make for a very good This American Life piece, and I wrote them a pitch. I actually never heard back from them, but by the grace of God, a producer of This American Life had reached out to Jonathan Blitzer at The New Yorker. He's their immigration correspondent about this program, Migrant Protection Protocols, that was sending migrants back into Mexico. And I think they were interested in interviewing him or working with him or just picking his brain. And he Jonathan said to the producer, the person you need to talk to is Emily Green. And I'm so forever grateful to Jonathan for that. The producer reached out to me and I said, 
you know, this is quite remarkable because I, I sent you a pitch and I, I had never heard back from it. And she said, please send it to me again. And I did. And really within a week, they had agreed to take it. Wow. And uh, I mean, how did the guy at the New Yorker notice send them your way? Because he had read my piece for Vice. Right, right. And and yeah, so how did it evolve from there? Because it is like a, a three-parter, if, if yeah. an hour-long radio piece in total. The truth of the matter is I had no involvement in the other two sections. I didn't even realize they were doing an entire hour around the show until sometime fairly far in. I worked with a wonderful producer by the name of Lena, and we went back to Nuevo Laredo, which was terrifying to me, but we, we went back, and then we went to Monterrey, which is a city in northern Mexico, to meet the man who had been kidnapped and then released. And a few weeks after that, they flew me up to New York, and we put the story together. But I never heard the episode in full until it came out. Were you surprised? Was I surprised? Yeah, I think I was surprised. I mean, that story was very emotionally taxing. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but when you work on a story that's so emotionally taxing and it comes out, it's hard to even know whether it's good at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because you're you're too deep in. I think when I started to realize what a brilliant episode it was, was at the point that I got feedback from friends, from family, from people I had never met who were just writing me saying how moved they had been by the episode. And that was a point at which I realized just how powerful it was. And I have listened back on it many times, and, and I think it is an incredibly powerful episode, and all the more so because of how our pieces played into each other and connected to each other and played off of each other. Right. And so, I mean, it goes on to, to win the Pulitzer. One other thing I was curious about, you being a, a freelancer at this point, obviously, is often for uh, that level of awards, it's it's the institution that decides whether they want to submit it or not. I mean, did they even tell you you were it was being submitted? Were you, were you aware? Did you... Like, uh, before yeah. it happened, did you have any inclination that it even could? I had I had zero idea that it had been submitted. Absolutely no idea. Wow. And I had no idea that the Pulitzers were being held that day either. I couldn't have told you what <laughs> month the Pulitzers were held. I mean, that was, to say I never dreamed of, of getting a Pulitzer is, is almost an understatement. I had returned home to my family in Atlanta in March of that year. The Pulitzer came out in May because the pandemic uh, was ramping up and felt very pressured by my family to return home. And I was living in my childhood bedroom feeling incredibly sorry for myself because I had just gone from having this pretty decent freelance career in Mexico to being back in Atlanta living in my childhood home when, when the Pulitzer came out. So it was shocking, and it was one of the, no, scratch at, it was by far the best day of my life, to be honest. And, of course, winning means the world to me, and even more important was being with my parents as it was happening, because there's nobody who's going to be prouder of you than your parents. Yeah, that's amazing. And how, how did you find out? Did uh, you see on social media or something like that? 
um, the pr- the producer had called me that morning, and I thought she was calling me just to tell me no to some half-hearted pitch I had made. <laughs> and she said, Emily, I have news for you. And I, I said, what? She said, we won a Pulitzer. And I, I had... I was speechless. I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? I had, I had even forgotten that Pulitzer's were awarded to audio, <laughs> were being awarded to audio for the first time. I mean, I, I had no, no, no idea. And she's like, we're winning a Pulitzer. Don't tell anybody. Except, and I said, well, can I tell my parents? She said, yes, of course, your parents, but don't tell anybody else. And I had this, I walked around with this fear for the next five hours that, um, you know, if I told somebody and they told and it came out on Twitter that they'd take the Pulitzer away from me. <laughs> and I also kind of didn't believe <laughs> I also didn't really believe it. I mean, you're like, are you sure? Are you sure? And my parents were have a lake house up in North Georgia. And I called my father to tell him I'm a little bit of a ditz wouldn't be the word, but I, I frequently lose things. And I'm known to say, get into fender benders and things of that nature. I'm not the most organized (laughs) human being. And so I called my dad and I said, Dad, I have news. And he said, what? And I said, I got a Pulitzer. And he said to me, what did he do to the car? (laughs) 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 He had no idea. I mean, he just, it was so outside our realm of of possibility. And and I I said, no, no. And he started to cry. And it was, and then they came home. And um, we sat on the couch. My sister and brother-in-law came over. And I still just didn't really believe it until it was announced. And then we celebrated and had pizza and beer and wine and screamed joyously for probably five hours. That's amazing. That's really touching. It's great that you were with your family. Yeah. I feel lucky. And so, I mean... How did that change things then? Because, I mean, the pandemic, it had obviously, you know, thrown your career for a loop and things like that. Um, I mean, you're back in Mexico right now. Is that correct? How how do things go from there? Yeah, I mean, I was in Atlanta for quite a bit longer. But it changed the way I felt about my time in Atlanta, that's for sure. Instead of feeling sorry for myself, it became ironic. (laughs) You know, there was an an irony to living in my childhood bedroom instead of feeling like, ugh. And um, I had, luckily was hired a few weeks before, maybe even just a week before, by the local public radio station in Georgia on a part-time basis, or rather for sort of a short-term contract to report for them. And I feel incredibly lucky because so much was happening in the United States at that time. There was the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the fallout from that, which I reported on. There were the Black Lives Matter protests. It just was a time of news in the United States. And so I was reporting for that local NPR station for for a couple of months after the Pulitzer. And that was good. It kept me grounded to just sort of do this job every day. And And then I knew that Vice wanted to hire me. And they were opening a bureau in Mexico, and they had told me pretty early on that you know they were going to try and hire me, and that finally came to happen in September of 2020. And it was important to me because I didn't want to return to Mexico in the middle of a pandemic without really health care, I'd say is the most important, but sort of institutional backing. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So I did want to ask you about safety. How do you feel about safety as a reporter in Mexico? How do you approach it? Have you had a lot of close calls? You know, does it get a worse reputation than it deserves? How do you feel about it? There is an enormous amount of security offered to foreign journalists just by factor of being foreign. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. And I think that gives me a sense of security in itself because, I mean, it's been years and years since a foreign journalist was physically attacked. So I don't worry about it too much, at least not in my day-to-day. Reporting in Nuevo Laredo scared me. It was a scary place for me, and um, I felt like I saw a real dark side of Mexico. And coming back from that, I, I was scared not so much that something would happen to me, but that I could make a misstep that would put my sources' lives in jeopardy and that my efforts to locate them or find out where they were would would not be good for them. And that that's a really difficult position to be in. But I don't worry about my personal safety on the day-to-day. I do kind of have a rule that if I'm going to someplace dangerous, I try to get in and out. I'm not trying to linger and stick around for a long time. I'm trying to be pretty efficient and then get out. And so far that's worked for me. I'm now doing some more TV work, and definitely that might have an added risk in that you're a lot more obvious. You stand out more, and you have this fancy, expensive equipment on you. So I think that that adds to the risk. But I wouldn't say that I've had close calls. That's good. And when you went to Nuevo Laredo the first time, I mean, that was by yourself, right? And it was only when you returned. It was with institutional support. With No, I went there on the first time with Vice, and I had institutional support in that they were tracking me. I put on a tracker on my telephone so they could know where I was, and they were checking in on me. And I think they even gave me health insurance for those few days. But to be honest, I didn't know how dangerous it was. And sometimes ignorance is bliss. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, obviously, I mean, we've all read the news about Mexico. We all know how it can be for for your sources. I mean, I imagine it is very risky to talk about being kidnapped by a gang in Mexico And obviously, I think you don't use any last names in your piece and things like that to protect your sources. Right. But you've done some other stuff that looks like it could be dangerous. I mean, like uh, you did something about like children being armed by drug gangs. Like, (laughs) I mean, a lot of it appears like it could be dangerous to do. Yeah. But that was when we, we spent one night there. We were fast. Okay, really in and out. Okay, in and out. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's more or less the biography section. So the next section, we talk about some stories. And I like to start with a, a story that got away. So we end on a high note, start on the low note. But <laughs> <laughs> a story that you wanted to do, but I don't know, you pitch an editor, they they say no, you know, the reporting trip doesn't work out, you can't get a person to talk to you. Or, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we've all been there where it's just never the important story that needs to be done now, and it just gets pushed off, pushed off, pushed off. 
just to illustrate some of the challenges of reporting. You know, we're not all writing long-form pieces mm-hmm. that are grand successes every time. Um, does anything come to mind? I would say, I'll give you two examples, and they're on somewhat different extremes. So I would say my biggest problem as a reporter is sometimes wanting to do the master article. And I remember that about the Philippines, of wanting to do some master opus about freedom of the press in the Philippines. And you asked me at the beginning, did I do a, a big report on it? And the truth of the matter is I didn't because I never knew how to tackle that. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned over my career is to do bite-sized pieces. And I really try to apply that even now. I mean, okay, you want to do a story about violence in Mexico. What's the bite-sized piece that I can do off that? What's, what's manageable? So that's not a story that got away, but I think often about the Philippines and what I could have done better. One that was much more tangible that got away is uh, right before the pandemic, I wrote a piece about mezcal in Oaxaca for the New York Times, and they accepted it, and I was thrilled, thrilled. First byline in the New York Times. Yeah, wow. And uh, then the pandemic hit. The story never ran. <laughs> so no byline in the New York Times still. And like about a really fun topic. Yeah, exactly. That's a drag. Um yeah, I mean, I guess just before we go on, I guess I am curious when it dawned on you, you had to leave Mexico because of the pandemic. Was it like right away or were, how did you deal with that? It was pretty early on. I have a wonderful family that is also has opinions on everything. And I had the <laughs> full court press on me to try and get me to return. I think within a matter of two weeks. I mean, I, I think, you know, Tom Hanks announced he had COVID and probably within 10 days of that, I was, I was back home. Wow. Yeah. I stopped the entire trip home. Oh no. I mean, yeah, it was a confusing time. Like I feel like a lot of people had to make early decisions. Am I willing to really risk getting this or not? Um, okay. Now for the high note. <laughs> if you could tell me about a story that you're proud of and just kind of tell us the story behind the story. Walk us through how you got the idea, how you reported it out, any reaction, start to finish. I mean, definitely the high note in my career is, is the Pulitzer and probably will be throughout the rest of my career. A recent story that I'm proud of is a documentary that I just put out with some colleagues. It is about the aftermath of the 2019 massive immigration raids at chicken plants in Mississippi, which got a lot of coverage at the time. And in January, there was a massacre in northern Mexico, and my colleague David Moore and I started talking about it. And he found out that one of the victims had been deported as a result of those raids. And I would say this is the best thing about working as staff is having colleagues. And two brains is usually better than one. And sure. he, he, he found that out, and we reported it out. And we went to Guatemala, where most of the massacre victims were from. We spent 10 days in Mississippi. We worked our sources so that we got information about the massacre in Mexico. It's a piece that encompasses three countries, and talks about the justice system in the United States 
in the justice system in Mexico and in the lives of the folks who are migrating from Guatemala. And, and so I feel like it is a piece that is, that is all-encompassing, albeit very depressing. Sure. So did you, how did you go about doing it? It was a, you said it was a documentary piece, so it was video? Yeah, we've done a written piece in version of it too. So we've done both writing and, and documentary. We started by going to Guatemala. We went right after the massacre and we wanted to go before the whole media storm got there so that we could talk to folks before they were tired of talking to the press <laughs> and gain their confidence and after that, we went to Mississippi and talked with the family of the man who had been deported. And I give enormous amount of credit to my colleague, David, because I really like the way that he interacted with our sources. And one of the things that I learned was describing the role of journalism to our sources. I think that... Too many of us reporters assume that folks know what we do and what we want from them and what our role is. And that's especially not true among migrants and disenfranchised people. And so to see him explain, this is what we do as journalists, and this is what we don't do as journalists, and this is our role, was really edifying for me. And it's, I guess I highlight that because you could be at the top of your game and still learn. And that's how I felt on this trip. And so we went to Mississippi. And then uh, about a month later, we went back to Guatemala for the funeral. So we just invested an enormous amount of time in telling this one man's story that is emblematic of a much bigger issue regarding ICE, regarding the justice system. And I feel really proud of it because we invested seven months into this piece and it came out well. And I don't think I've ever invested seven months into any story, not even the Pulitzer one. Yeah, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Was was there an element reported from Mexico? or There was an element reported from Mexico, but it was all done on the phone. And part of that was a risk-reward analysis, just like you said, in terms of danger. The place where they were massacred is very dangerous and... We didn't know what we would get from that, except filming the actual landscape. And so we decided it wasn't worth it. And we bought some footage off of a freelance reporter who had gone there and recorded video. And then we did the substantive reporting of it on the phone, working sources. So I would say that's a, you asked about danger in Mexico. I, I do think that those are conversations we have. Is it worth it? Is it worth it for us to go to certain places? And oftentimes the answer is yes, but sometimes it's no. And I think it's really important to be honest with yourself about that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's see. And I mean, seven months, uh, whoa, did it get good reaction? I mean, uh, it must be tough, I imagine. I, I look through your clip file and, I, you know, it, there are a lot of heavy stories yeah. about this things is heavy. like this. Yeah. And uh, like you say, it's very hard to change the, the status quo. Do you feel that at least like got some conversation going? Do you, do you, did it get a good reaction? It didn't get as much reaction as I would have liked, frankly. Vice puts out a lot of videos, and this is not anywhere near their top viewed. 
by any measure. But I think that's the nature of the work we do sometimes. The the stories you invest the most on and you think are the best sometimes don't get the most views or the most hits. But, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. I wish it were otherwise. I'm lucky in that the piece that won the Pulitzer, millions of people heard it, and, and I feel very fortunate for that. But that's not the norm. Right, yeah. I mean, that can definitely be the case. I mean, sometimes, you know, a breaking news thing you do real quick can do just as well as the piece yeah. you do for months. And, yeah, and even those long-researched pieces, like maybe they reverberate for, I don't know, a, a week, but, you know, and then kind of on to the next thing. But mm-hmm. that is the nature of journalism. Let's see. And uh, just before we move on to the next section, I, I, I did... Uh, think I heard that Vice was getting back into Vice had had that HBO show mm-hmm. and then that had ended and I heard they were maybe getting back into TV TV um, in addition to internet videos. Mm-hmm. Are you involved in any of that? I was just curious. Yeah, they have a Vice News channel on cable and a nightly program called Vice News Tonight that runs every night at 11 p.m. And in fact, this documentary that I worked on ran on, on that and then it was put on YouTube. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's great. And you have more video stuff in the works, it sounds like? Yeah. I mean, I like video because of the need to be there. Right. Like, the, you know, you've you got to be in the thick of the action. And that, I think, plays well also for print reporting. But it's so easy with print reporting for editors to say, well, just call them on the phone instead of see them in person. And you can get good stuff on the phone for sure. But there is something about meeting somebody in person, you often get other details, new details, see the scenery. And that also makes my print stories better. Yeah, I mean, the phone thing, I mean, I leaned hard into that during the pandemic. But I just think about how screwed I would have been if I didn't already have sources, Mm -hmm. because it's like makes it very hard to establish new relationships. Totally. Um, Okay, cool. So if it's all right with you, next up is the lightning round, which is faster, more fun questions. But feel free to respond at whatever length you like. Do you feel ready? Yeah. Great. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at a lot to keep up on stuff for work? And I'm particularly looking for something that everybody might not have heard of, something you look at to keep up on Mexico? Honestly, just read the local newspapers. I don't have one in particular. Sorry. That's okay. Okay, and then uh, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun, but vaguely journalistic in nature? People magazine. (laughs) That still exists? Yep, amazingly. Yeah, I guess I haven't uh, don't spend much time in U.S. supermarkets, anymore, <laughs> but uh, that's cool. Um, can you get it there in Mexico? No, but you know, sometimes I just go online and look at their pictures and articles mindlessly. That's funny. Could you ever see yourself being a celebrity type journalist? I know a couple people who have done it. I like writing profiles, but there's no way in hell I'd ever be a celebrity type journalist, such as uh, writing for people. <laughs> right. 
And then what is the best article piece? Again, it can be in any medium that you have consumed recently. I thought that the Day X podcast on the New York Times was brilliant. I thought it was so well done. And I had that feeling of, I want to be that reporter. And a shout out to Lisa Hagen, a reporter at WABE, the local NPR station, who did a fantastic series about guns. And she won the Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting this year. Oh, cool. That first one was the Deus podcast? I don't it's think called, I know. It's called Day X. Day X. What yeah. is that? It's a, it was a whole podcast series about right-wing infiltration of the German armed forces. And it was a five-part series on the daily, and it was it was brilliant. Cool. Yeah, I didn't hear about that. I'll look for it. And just to say, with your stories and all the other stories you mentioned, I will put links up in the episode description. So I'll go find them later, and people listening can find them there. Okay. Let's see. Those were two good ones. Is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't specifically related to your job? Sports. I like sports, but I like sports culture stories, mostly. I'm not so interested in who won and who lost, but the story behind the the athlete or what got them to where they are. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I think, I mean, my, my answer sounds so fucking boring, but like I feel like John Lee Anderson has done some pretty amazing work hanging out with Chavez and writing profiles of him and all of the like. I mean, I don't know that I'd switch, change careers with him, but I see the stories he does. And I, I think the people that he's gotten to meet and hang out with I, are pretty fabulous. But I also know John Lee Anderson. There's a lot of, like, he's like a little bit polemical. So I don't know. <laughs> um, I just remember, let me just say, I remember, I'm going to put it this way. John Lee Anderson wrote a profile of Chavez where he rode with Chavez on his personal airplane, I believe, to Cuba. And that has always stuck with me. Like, that is so cool. I wish I could have done that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna to modify the answer to that way. Instead of saying I want to change B, John Lee Anderson, but just more about that, that anecdote of Venezuela and being on the plane. And... Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, no, John Lee Anderson is great. I mean, uh, you're not doing it right, I guess, if you're not even a little bit controversial. And uh, I do know he is aware of this existence of this podcast and it has always been very nice. So uh, <laughs> I'm for it. Okay. And I'll add, in terms of other reporters that that I admire, there's so many out there right now. And I think, for example, Nicole Hannah-Jones is doing unbelievable groundbreaking work so i i think of it more in terms of folks that i emulate or look up to as opposed to who do i want to switch places with sure that makes sense to me and it it honestly is a bit weird i guess to say you want to switch places with somebody (laughs) who's still alive (laughs) what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self it'll be all right I mean, I think that's it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. Don't stress so much. I could definitely use that advice, maybe even sometimes right <laughs> in the present. <laughs> what is one thing that most people don't know about you? 
I think people assume I have my life a lot more together than I do. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still figuring out where I want my career to take me. This one, I don't know if I should keep asking people it or not. It's, I've realized it actually, uh, it's what is your most embarrassing journalism-related anecdote or, or story? I realize that this has turned up a lot of stories of, you know, terrible corrections and things like that that are real downers and not embarrassing in a funny way, which maybe when I first thought of this question, but uh, well, it's does okay. come to mind? I have a pretty funny one, <laughs> which is uh, the very first time, well, after, once I started at the at Georgia Public Broadcasting, 25 or so, Obama had just been elected, and I went to the inauguration, and my editor asked me to, to file some stories from the Georgia Ball. And I was so nervous I wanted to down a glass of wine. But my sister, who looks a lot like me, many people think we're twins, but we're not, convinced me no to hold off. And so the two of us went around, me with this recording equipment, putting it in people's faces for the first time. And I went up to this man and I asked him, I said, I'm Emily, who are you? And he said to me, I'm Senator Isaacson. And I just (laughs) thought, oh, Oh well, hello, Senator. How are you? <laughs> and and then we proceeded to do the interview, and it was, uh, but it was quite humiliating that I did not recognize the senator from Georgia. Huh. I mean, yeah, that's funny, but but yeah, I definitely like being in a foreign country in Brasilia. Like, there are so many dignitaries that sometimes, like, I walk in the room and I'm like racking my brain, who is this person? And uh, usually there's a way I can fudge it or something. And as a foreign maybe you get more of a pass. <laughs> right. But, uh, but yeah, um, definitely happens to me. And then the next one is, I guess, kind of, uh, if I had to give it a short title, the like pinch me moment. If there's ever been like a particular situation where you thought, I can't believe this is my job or this is my life, that being a journalist has gotten you into. It can be uh, the coolest situation. It can be a weird situation. It can be serious. It can really be whatever you want, but something, you know, you can't believe uh, this is your life. I feel that a bit now, frequently. I went to Bolivia for a story my colleagues and I were in La Paz, and we went on the Teleferico, which is the subway in the sky. And it was so cool, like one of the coolest things I've ever done. And I'm in La Paz working, and I pinch myself. It's This is really amazing. I'm I'm literally living out my dream, getting to travel the world, doing the job that I love. That's That's pretty pinch-worthy. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. You took the big risk moving abroad, and it paid off. Yeah, yeah, it did. I'm, I'm, but there's a lot of luck involved in this too. You know, hard work, luck, being in the right place at the right time. I'm a fortunate woman. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists, and why? I loved the movie Spotlight. I just loved it. It was so well done and feel good and nerdy. I think I've watched it four or five times. 
<laughs> I I get that response a lot, and so much that I did do a supercut special episode of everybody's comments about Spotlight. <laughs> and then the final question is: qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? And qualifications aside means. You know, you can be a scientist, you can be an astronaut, you can be an NBA player, you can be whatever you want to be, but not a journalist. What would you do? Well, I wanted to be a figure skater when I was 15 years old. I had barely figure skated in my life, so that was a pipe dream. But what else would I do? I mean, if we're talking about realistically, I think being a doctor could be pretty cool because you tangibly get to help somebody in a real way but um that's such a boring answer i don't know uh maybe an artist yeah i think i'd like to be an artist but that's putting aside the fact that my creative talent uh, needs some work but i think being an artist or a musician or something in the arts would be really freaking cool yeah that's a cool answer that's a good use of the qualifications aside Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I think this went great. Uh, So anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, thanks so much for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Emily Green, a correspondent for Vice News based in Mexico City. I'll post links to some things Emily talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, August 29th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.